James Lapine sat down with moderator Ira Weitzman for a one-on-one interview in July of 1985. I'm Hal Prince, a member of the Society of Stage Directors and Choreographers, and this is Masters of the Stage, produced and presented by the Stage Directors and Choreographers Foundation in collaboration with the American Theatre Wing. Because this program was not originally intended for broadcast, it is not of the highest technical quality. As a result, portions of the conversation may have been edited. Um, starting at the obvious place, how'd you get into the theater? Uh, uh, well, I did do Jack and Jack and the Beanstalk when I was about 10 in Mansfield, Ohio. It was probably my first foray into the theater, and then I wisely left it. In high school, I think I was in one production as an actor, and then I didn't do any theater at all for a good long time. Um, it's kind of an odd uh, route, but I, I majored in history in college and then got interested in art and went on to graduate school, basically to stay out of the draft, and in design. So I have a master's in graphic design, um, and photography, and I came to New York, and I was a page at NBC, and uh, many waiters' jobs, and ended up uh, doing a lot of photography work, and I worked in architecture for a while, and then I started doing graphic design work freelance, and I got a job uh, designing a magazine that comes out of the Yale School of Drama called Yale Drama, or Yale Theater. Uh, so I went up and met Robert Brustein, who was then running the theater department, and he hired me to, along with Rocco Landesman and Robert Marks, who were the editors, uh, to design the new Yale Theater, because they were really tired of the Yale graphic designers, who are very corporate. Um, um, it's kind of a funny story, because I didn't really have a portfolio, so I kind of made up a portfolio to kind of get the job. Um, and once I was there for a year doing that and working at the Architectural League, Bob Roostein said, why don't you come up full-time and uh, you'll do all the graphics for the theater and all our posters and all our sales tools. So I, I moved up to New Haven and I also taught a course uh, in graphic design in the drama school for theater administrators and directors. And um, they have at Yale then, I don't know if they do now, it's called the January Work Month. So when January came, everyone who was involved in the school did something different than their area of expertise. It's actually kind of great. And my students said, you should direct a play. And uh, because I was very uh, interested uh, as an audience member in Robert Wilson's work and Richard Foreman and Meredith Monk and all the kind of, I was a very downtown kind of guy once upon a time. And um, they were doing, you know, the usual production stuff say anything derogatory about it, but you know, you're Chekhov, you're this, you're that, and I just thought, well, why don't they do something a little different? So um, for this January work month where actors, you know, get clothes, everybody did something different. My students said, you should direct a play, and I said, well, if you can find a play for me to direct, I'll direct it, and they, uh, one of the students came up with this play called uh, Photograph by Gertrude Stein, which was uh, five acts, and it was only three pages long. It was... Uh, uh, one of her poem plays, and I said, oh, well, this is really cool, you know, okay. And uh, the next thing I knew, we were just kind of, we, I had my yoga teacher in it. We just kind of grabbed 
uh, whoever we could uh, around to be in it. And because it was called Photograph, it was great. So I used all um, my images and, and took photographs as the set. And I got a huge rear projection screen. And we found this theater in downtown New Haven. And um, we, you know, they worked on, on it in different capacities. And people we knew around school came. And uh, I tried to get Bob Brustein there. He didn't come. But um, the New Haven Register critic came, who actually now is, is a critic for Variety, uh, Mark Lynn Taylor. And he gave us actually a really nice review. And then Lee Brewer uh, was coming up to the school to teach. And he said, oh, why don't you do it in New York? And I said, we don't have any money. And then a friend of mine said, oh, you know, Jasper Johns is a big uh, Gertrude Stein fan. So I wrote Jasper Johns a letter. And he opened the mail, and there was like 5000 bucks. And uh, so suddenly we came to New York. I mean, this is really actually kind of a good story because it really tells you anybody can work in the theater. And, um, and we, for casting, this is really dopey, we put signs up all over Soho saying if you want to be in a show. So that's how we cast it. The yoga teacher was still in it. And, um, and we just cast these people off the street. It was a non-equity production in a little place that's no longer there called the Open Space Theater in Soho. And then I had um, an another friend, I had a lot of friends in the art world who said, can I be of some help? I said, well, maybe you could get some critics to come. So she called up the uh, lead critic of the New York Times who had just kind of come into the position, a guy named Richard Eater, who was there for a very short time. And he knew less about the theater than I did. So he didn't know who I was, but he thought he should. So he came down to review it, and um, this is one of these fairy tale stories. I got like a half a page rave review in the New York Times, and I suddenly thought, well, I don't think I'll do graphic design anymore. And that's how I started in the theater. But now you're one of the few directors who's also equally known as a writer, and who's, pro who's, who's also directed uh, your own writing. How did you get into writing? Well, you know, the funny thing is, um, when you do graphic design, you know, you read, you're supposed to, everything that you're typesetting. So I was reading all these Yale theater magazines year after year, and they'd always have plays in them. So I read a lot of plays, and uh, this woman, Lynn, Lynn Austin and Mary Silverman, who had a, Lynn has passed away, but a, a group called Music Theater Performing Music Group. Music Theater Group. They came down and saw the show, having read the review in the Times, and said, you can do anything you want. And I thought, okay. And uh, one of these things that interested me was a series of dreams that I had read in a, in a Jung book called Man and His Symbols. So um, I sort of created that uh, piece that I started to write it. Now, I wasn't much of a writer, but that's how I started writing. And I actually found that I enjoyed writing. Um, and, you know, it's real ignorance is bliss. I had nothing to lose. I had no career ambitions. I was, I got, I was working then over at Fashion Institute of Technology teaching design, and it was just a lark. And, uh, you know, I think if I had been educated in the theater, I probably wouldn't have been very good at it. But because I had no frame of reference for what I was doing, I wasn't plagued by all of this information of other people's work, and I just did what I did. And, uh, so they encouraged me to write this piece, and I wrote that piece, and then... Uh, Where was 12 Dreams done originally? It was done originally at a church on 90th Street. Uh, I called the Open Eye, I think it was. Yes. Yeah. 
And um, it was a very funky production. It was the first time I had worked with equity actors, and it was really an education. I mean, I'm sure I was terrible, and they were not happy with me. And uh, uh, But they did it, and I, I didn't have it reviewed. I just said I didn't want to have it reviewed. And um, after that, Lynn up there at Lenox, they had an association with uh, the Lake Colony for the Arts, which is a uh, writer's colony. So they invited me to come there for a month and work on some writing, so that's when I started writing plays. And um, what about musicals? How'd you start getting into musicals? Didn't, I, think I know the answer. <laughs> don't I don't think answer. I know the answer. I think you you and Bill Finn pursued me to do a musical. Well, my, uh, my recollection was, and this is actually an interesting... Uh, an interesting story in context because it shows what the kind of community theater is. I remember that when we, you were doing your play table settings right. at Playwrights Horizons, and uh, we had just finished doing the first musical that Bill Finn wrote called In Trousers. And uh, just I think you were there in the same environment, and everybody thought you should be working together. I, there must be at least a dozen people who'd like to now say they put you together. But it seemed to be a natural gravitation. And um, so that's my recollection, that it wasn't a necessarily by design. But, that, but you're so good at musicals, I'm curious what attracted you to them to begin with. You know, the funny thing is, I just I didn't go to much theater, so I didn't have uh, a lot of information about them. Uh, I like music. I mean, really, I did. You I like it? Did you did you have any favorite musicals? Oh, you mean growing up? Yeah. No, um, <laughs> I didn't. The first uh, Sondheim musical I saw was Sweeney Todd, which you know uh, I wasn't even sure what he did. So. Uh, <laughs> I don't, um, I remember growing up, my parents took me, well, here's another story. We're, I was born in Mansfield, Ohio, it's a little town, and the most famous guy in Mansfield, Ohio, was a guy named Lee Adams, who wrote the lyrics for Bye Bye Birdie. So we drove all the way from Mansfield, Ohio, to New York to see our favorite son's show, Bye Bye Birdie, you know. And so that was the first musical I ever saw, and it had a kind of personal thing to it, because of this guy who came from our hometown, you know, so, uh, but I saw a few musicals. We moved from Ohio to Connecticut when I was growing up, but um, now I have to say I've never had a favorite musical. My sister directed me in Carnival. I saw that. My sister actually is 10 years older and taught in my high school and was actually the drama teacher, oddly enough. So, no, I, I, I have nothing interesting to say on that subject. <laughs> Uh, and Bill Finn was just a maniac who pursued me to the point where I just finally said, sure, I'll direct. I don't know why he was coming after me to direct a musical. But it was fun. But then when I did one, it was such great fun. I thought, oh, well, this is can we take that as a, a living doing this. This is great. Can we take it as a little case study? Because yeah. I think it's interesting just the the uh, how you cut your teeth on a show that was... Uh, uh, the show that became March of the Falsettos when it first began was very amorphous as I recall. It was not even a show, really. Can you talk a little bit more about the genesis of well, Watch of the Falsetto? Uh, you know, I never even saw In Trousers, I'm embarrassed to say. Uh, to this day, I still don't go to the theater that much. So. <laughs> um, but Bill had, you know, he sort of writes his autobiographical things, and he had, I don't know what 
four or five songs, and he had this sort of outline of characters. There was the Marvin and the wife and the lover. We had done a reading of it, I think, prior to your right. becoming his collaborator. And a shrink, I think, was in it. There was a shrink. There was a woman who played the devil. Uh, yeah. As I recall. The one thing I remember, uh, you know, the funny thing is graphic design is a great training because it's all about signatures and structure. You know, when you put a magazine together, like I used to do this magazine, you'd have these big charts on the wall. And you'd, you'd have to, in those days, it's probably different now, you'd have to print things in what's called signatures of 8 or 16. So you had to design it in a certain number of pages in a certain grouping. And in a funny kind of way, it was a great training for directing and structure. And, and what we did with Bill's show is we would take, I took each song and put them on the wall on a card, on an index card. And then she started shuffling around. And then, you know, well, she can't be in that number and that number, so we got to put a number in between. Well, what would that number be? It was a great puzzle. And then I think my biggest contribution was the boy. Right. I said we should have a kid in it. So we once we put the kid in it, that really kind of... And then the story just kind of... And then there was the shrink, and I said, well, why doesn't the shrink... You know, it's just the shrink. What if the shrink becomes the boyfriend of the wife? And so it's that kind of working together that was really great fun. And we had... You know, in those days, they did how many productions of Playwrights Horizons? I mean, just like 14 or something. There was so much activity. There was nothing precious about it. You know, now... There's so little money at these theaters, and everything is riding on each production, and they, you know, they so kind of hem and haul over what you can produce. And in those days, I remember, it was like trying to get enough material to just fill the space every month or two. So, uh, and we didn't have a set, and I had this great set designer who I knew from the Yale School of Drama and college, Doug Stein, and I said, well, why don't you just go in the basement and see what you got, and we'll put wheels on it, and that's what we did. And the whole set... Um, was just furniture on wheels and it was great because you could just get it on, get it off and then I had the actors bringing it on and the dance captain was our friend Michael Starobin who was also the musical director so we used to, the actors would go home and we would just drink endless beer and smoke dope and run around on the stage sort of figuring out to Billy's crazy music and then Billy, I'd say, go write a song here and he'd come in with a song but no lyrics. So the actors were singing This Piggy Went to Market. <laughs> We'd be doing run-throughs and then you'd get to a song that was This Piggy Went to Market and then he would write the lyrics. It was really an exciting time. And uh, and then again, it was one of those wacky things where I think it was one of Frank Rich's first reviews. He came and just gave, you know, one of discovered those... Discovered it. Discovered it. And then those suddenly, are the days when you could be discovered in I the know. New York Times. And then, of course, it's been downhill since then. True. <laughs> Well, I mean, there's such an innocence about it. It was such an innocent time for us in the theater. It would be like doing it at Hasty Pudding or putting on a show at your school. It had that kind of vibe to it. And, you know, it was down in funky 42nd Street at the time. and uh, So it wasn't precious. Uh, and I think that's why the work was good. It's, it's scarier now when you have people investing millions of dollars and everybody's really tense and, you know... Uh, it, you just don't have that relaxed atmosphere in putting a show on. But James, coming from, from the uh, informal way that you got into the theater and that you met some of your collaborators and all of that stuff, um, what's your feeling now, all these years later, about the issues and, and what it's like to collaborate? What have you learned about collaboration? 
what do you what do you bring to a collaboration that seems to be to facilitate people's work? Because I think that's something that you're incredibly good at. Well, you know, I think everybody has an individual gift. You know, I'm sure everybody here, director, everybody brings something else. So one of the things is finding material that suits what you do uh, and that you have a passion for. And I think a lot of the uh, problems with directors today, unfortunately, is they want to work. And if you want to work, you sort of got to take what you're given. And I had the luxury of just following my own kind of voice and footsteps where I see a lot of directors who are just, you know, they have to hone their craft, so they end up having to work on things that maybe they're not initially drawn to. So I would say, you know, trying to find a way to be passionate about something, find its reason for being. You know, sometimes you get sent scripts and you find that you don't know why the person wrote it, and we're sort of living in an era now where some of these shows are kind of manufactured a little bit. It's like, oh, let's do this show because I like this movie, and let's get him, and let's get him, and let's get her. And you realize that they're not really working because nobody said, I want to do that story, and this is why I want to do it. Instead, they're saying, oh, I'd love to have a big hit Broadway show or whatever, and the material gets driven more by sort of a product sensibility than a personal one. And I think if you look around, it's mostly the personal shows that are interesting. In collaborating, it's just a marriage. It's like finding a girlfriend or a boyfriend. It's really just finding somebody you want to be in a room with and who you have a simpatico with. And sometimes you can be good collaborators and not get along, and it can be good that you're kind of at loggerheads. In a way, I think it's probably better. Like when I met Steve Sondheim, we were just so completely different that I think it made for a good collaboration because our frame of reference was so different. Whereas Bill, well, Bill is so different than everyone. So, <laughs> you know, Bill and I were young, so it was we were kind of growing up and learning at the same time. Let's. Uh, I think people would probably like to hear about how you met Sondheim and what how the genesis of your first collaboration with him started. I worked with Bill first, right? And then, yes. Yeah, and then um, I had a. Oh, is it again another fluke? I had a, a a story that I loved in college called A Cool Million by Nathaniel West. And after I did 12 Dreams, I was trying to think of something else to do. And I thought, well, this story always amused me. And Stephen Graham, who used to be a producer, produced Table Settings, showed it to him. And he said, oh, you know, we'll do a musical and who would be good. And the first person we thought of was Randy Newman. So I met with Randy Newman about it. And he didn't, he thought it was too depressing and dark. And I <laughs> thought, this is weird. This is Randy Newman who writes the most, the darkest music I've ever heard telling me that this story is too dark. <laughs> but that's sort of Randy, who I worked with at a later date, and I realized Randy doesn't see his work as dark at all. He thinks it's all cheery and hilarious, so kind of like Bill that way. So through Stephen Graham, I was introduced to Stephen Sondheim, who had I hadn't realized come and seen a couple of my plays that I had done before. I had done March of the Falsettos, and that's how we met, and he ended up saying it was too much like Candide and didn't want to do it, but... Uh, he had just come off of Merrily We Roll Along, which did not do well on Broadway. And I think that was the end of his, he just knew that he and Hal were going to kind of take a vacation from each other. So that's how we met. But how did you come up with Sunday in the Park with George then? Again, because I hadn't really collaborated. I didn't know what you were supposed to do. So we just got together a few times and just chatted. I don't even, couldn't even begin to tell you what we chatted about. And, um, you know, for me at the time, you know, I was living in literally a rat-infested loft downtown to go up into this glorious townhouse. It was like Act One, you know, that book where you certainly get plucked from Brooklyn, you know, and you're sitting in somebody's living room. And 
uh, we would talk. And what I did is I so you know so of the visual thing being the kind of inspiration. I, I'd bring over images, and we'd looked at images, and I'd spread them all out. And I'm sure he must have thought it was crazy. You know, it's, 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 she's interesting. What about that? And one of the images I brought one day was the island of the Grand Jat, and I had used it a little bit in that Gertrude Stein piece. So the fact of the matter was he really didn't do anything, and I just started writing it. And in fact, as you will recall, I wrote in, I was supposedly collaborating with him. I wrote an entire act, and he didn't do. He kept I kept bringing it. And he never would write anything. It was just, but he was kind of brilliant. He'd go, oh yeah, there could be a song here. This would be a good song, you know. And um, as you remember, a little commission from Playwrights Horizons. So we had a re. This is really funny. We had a reading of my first act. And we hauled in this big piano, and I don't know whether he sat down or whether he actually had a musical director sat down. He wrote the opening five chords to the show, and that was it. I played the opening five chords, sat down, and then we read through the play. And that was the, the reading of the first musical. It was pretty funny. Isn't it pretty typical of Steve Sondheim that he takes the lead from the book writer usually in his yeah. collaborations? I, you know, I thought after a while, well, if he doesn't do it, I'll have a play. So, you know... Uh, <laughs> He, it was like dragging him into the water. And then when he started to write, he sort of wrote it a feverish pitch. And he's very, very shy about... He, w at first, would never show me anything till it was finished. A complete song, everything done, and he'd be a wreck, and then he'd play it for me. And I thought, well, this is, you know, can I, like, get a little inkling what you're working... You know, it was like really... You asked about collaboration. It was like courting each other, you know, until we kind of... I think he could feel secure... And I realized in retrospect, of course, he had worked with Hal basically and these other guys his entire life and uh, must have been a horrible, uh, you know, very difficult for him to, and I give him enormous credit in retrospect too for picking somebody 20 years his junior who had done virtually, you know, what, three plays, two plays in a musical, never been on Broadway, and that's who he decided to write his next show with. So, I mean, I think it's pretty a remarkable for him, now that I'm, I'm his age, I'm the age he was when I met him, which is really kind of a bizarre place to be. But I realize now that he he was very daring in that way, and um, I think we wrote a great show because of it. That was a real show of discovery for two people. Uh, and there was definitely the air of that in the theater at Playwrights Horizons, which uh, we took a lot of knocks, as I recall, for right. working with a Broadway-established writer. I don't think people really realized what a transition Sondheim was making and what a breakthrough you were making in collaborating with him. But that's to lead us to the idea of workshops because we did a fairly elaborate, really was a small production, but it was a workshop in the sense that there was a tremendous amount of work being done all the time and right. it changed all the time and did not open to the, um, to the critics. What is your feeling about the usefulness of workshops in developing a show? You know, it's, they're a little dangerous now because now workshops are sort of used as a sales tool more than they are as a developmental tool. So in those days, you know, again, we were all so kind of blind. And with him coming down there to 42nd Street, what did we know, you know? And we just were writing. Yeah, it was great fun. That was just a great... And we never did the second act until... I remember we had... We a, did it for one weekend yeah, out of a four-week We had run. this one benefit, or a couple benefits, where it was like 500 bucks to see this thing. And I remember Leonard Bernstein, who I'd never met, came up to me, gave me a big kiss on the lips. That was a shock. And then he said, if I give you another 500, can I see the second act? 
<laughs> it's pretty funny. Uh, but now the workshops, I mean, I love workshops. If I could make a living doing workshops, but I would aside from only the do workshops. Aside from the business, that, let's just talk about the, the art right. of it for the moment, just the usefulness of it in a, as pure a sense as you... Well, the good thing it. about it is if it's, a, if it's a proper workshop, it's like doing these shows that we did at Playwrights where there's just an air of discovery and expectation is low and you allow an environment for people to just do their best work without any pressure and, and try and solve the problems. The difficulty is just it's now become where they have audiences and it's the expectations are so high for these things and people are making judgments about your show before you've even finished it. And the other thing is it's always better in workshop. Every show is better in workshop. Than oh, and every show. reading is a success. Every reading is better than every... I mean, you know, because you get to fill in all the blanks and you excuse everything that doesn't work and you're 10 feet away from somebody and it's just so powerful and intimate. The next thing you know, it's, you've got 500 scowling people staring at your work. You know, so. But James, would you do a new show, musical or a play, without doing a workshop or reading first? Oh, uh, I don't know, probably. It depends on what it was and... It just depends on what it was. For me, it's great because I'm in a position now where I can kind of be a little choosy about what I do. So I love doing a workshop because it's not that much out of my life. Two weeks, three weeks, I can fiddle around and play. And, and I've done a number of those, and I feel like uh, I'm at an age now where I, you know, the way Steve sort of taught me, I can share what I know with people. And I've enjoyed it because even if I don't continue with it, often it helps the people I'm working with, and I can provide them that, so... And it, nobody has to put up quite the amount of money that they have to put up, obviously, to do production. Let's talk about Into the Woods for a minute, because it's currently playing on Broadway. Actually, that was a show that also began its life at Playwrights Horizons through right. a few readings. And it's had, I think it's had about, it's had three productions, hasn't it? I mean, that you've directed, The yeah, Old the Globe Old in San Diego, and then the original the Broadway, Broadway production, right. and this right. current one. So this is another unique situation uh, a director who gets the chance to work on a show over the course of years in three different versions. Can you talk a little bit about how the show evolved through its different versions to today? Well, my memory ain't what it used to be. The well, I can start you off by yeah. saying that it was originally at Playwrights Horizons, it was exactly the same Sondheim-Lapine pattern where we did a re the first reading was an entire act and a half of right. book, and so uh, the opening. Yeah. Maybe about 25 minutes of that opening, uh, which we did a reading of, and then we did another reading, and, and then it premiered. It was too large a show to fit on the small, confined, with no wing space stage at Playwrights Horizons, and it was picked up by Jack O'Brien at the right. Old Globe. That was one of the shows where we picked up producers right away after we did, I think, a two-week workshop. Well, it just kind of grew and you know went through a lot of changes. What was the impetus for doing it to begin with? Do you remember that? Yeah, I definitely remember that. It's funny because talking about collaborations and relationships, when we were working at Playwrights Horizons on Sunday, Steve, I don't mind me saying this, he said to me, we went out to dinner, he said, I, wanted, I want you to do the next show. And I was like, we haven't finished this show. I know, but I want, you to, I want to do the next show with you. It was a kind of a really kind of strange and you know wonderful and scary moment. I don't know what that was about. Once we did Sunday, we were immediately in mode and it was kind of weird because we had an offer to do a movie of Sunday in the Park and I was desperate to direct a movie and, and he didn't want to do the movie. He wanted to write the next show. I look back often and think well, maybe I should have, you know, I wonder what it would have been like if I had actually done the movie instead of the show. But obviously I'm 
Girls have done the show. And then we started hunting around for a show to do. And, you know, it's funny how strange... I was just still in my kind of Jungian mode, so fairy tales were of interest to me. He wanted to do... He was very into computers as they were coming out. He was interested in those computer games as a musical, but I never did computers, so I didn't know what they were. I don't know, Quest or something, or... You know, those computer, like a Quest musical, I don't know what those computer games are. He's very into that. Then we sort of hit upon an idea of a fairy tale, but when you read the fairy tales, they were so short, they didn't really lend themselves to expansion. And then I tried to write an original fairy tale, and that was virtually impossible. And then, well, this is really another weird story, but I had this idea, I don't know what, how I got it, but it's just totally unrelated. I thought it would be really fun to do like a TV special of all the shows I grew up with and to take like all the different characters we grew up with and put them all together so that you would have, I don't remember, like the cop shows and the hospital shows with Dr. Kildare and Leave it to Beaver and bring all those people back and write a thing so like Leave it to Beaver has a car accident and the police come <laughs> and the police turn out to be Mannix and all these police people and they take them to the hospital and there's Dr. Kildare. And I told Steve this idea, he said, that's brilliant, you know. Called up Norman Lear, so <laughs> and next thing I know, I'm like pitching this idea to Norman Lear at Steve's house, which is a whole other anecdotal, bizarre story. But Norman Lear said, "Gee, that's such a wild idea, you know. You know, sure, let's let's do it." And Steve and I looked. He said, "Well, we don't really want to do it. You know, we just thought it was a good idea." And Norman Lear says, "Well, I'm only going to do it if you do it." But then. It was from that idea I thought, well, what about taking that idea with the fairy tales? And that's how that idea got translated over to something else altogether different. So that's how. And I was about to have a child, so that sort of why the whole storyline is about having a baby. And you know, it's just kind of the way things evolve. Something else I remember about the, the very early stages of Into the Woods was that you wrote a lot of monologues, descriptive right. and um, narrative monologues in the characters' voices, right. some of which were almost directly Verbatim. transcribed yeah. lyrically by Sondheim. Yeah. Just in shows that I've worked on with uh, Sondheim as well, that seems to be a way that he um, functions well and, as I said before, follows the lead of the book writer. I mean, what I learned from Steve is he's a total collaborator. He takes from you completely and also gives you input and it's it is sort of sometimes like he'll remind me you know say oh that's a great line and go you wrote it and it's if i could just stand on a box I and mean, when i read things in particularly ben brantley of the new york times i mean i don't care if people don't like your work or whatever but it's such a ignorant you know just as ignorant on the subject of how you make a musical and the fact that you could actually separate the book from the music like some guys over on east 49th and the other guys over on you know west 49th writing a show it's just insane whether you like it or not is another issue and he's totally right in his thinking on the subject but to try and assess the responsibilities is on a good musical i think is insane but you've got an andrew lloyd Webber who writes your music before you write the book which is in many ways a very, they become more separate entities. So I don't know, but with Steve anyway, to take nothing away from his genius, which he is incomparable in the American musical theater, I and mean, he's created it. But one of the reasons he's great at it is because, because he's chosen the people he chooses to work with and understands how to create those brilliant songs the way he does. They're so integral to the story. And, and as far as I'm concerned, a book of a musical shouldn't be good. I don't mean good in the sense it, it helps you get from song to song to song and 
I'd just soon get rid of them, the book in a way. I'm lucky because I'm directing it, so I could be a little magnanimous about it. But And he, when we did Passion, as you will recall, it was much more music. And he came to me, I think very wisely, and said, there's too much music. You know, you need the book. The book is a respite from the music. The book gives an audience a chance to rest from the music. And he was right, you know. So we actually chucked a lot of the music, and I wrote the book for the purpose of the songs. It's a musical. That's what it's supposed to be, you know. It's a kind of a curse, isn't it, in the musical theater? And I don't think you're alone. The composer, and if the composer happens to be the lyricist, too, it's often labeled the Sontai musical. Oh, yeah. The, the mm -hmm. composer gets the lead credit. Well, that's credit. the longevity of that's, a show. Is, I mean, would I rather it said Sondheim? I'm sure, but, you know, that's to be expected. It's what you buy into when you do a musical, and I don't have a problem with that. And I, and I think I think what's, what makes me angry about it is I think fewer and fewer people want to write books for musicals, and I don't know any librettists who make their living and career as a librettist anymore. And it's such a thankless task. And I, frankly, if I weren't directing the shows, I don't even know that I want to do it. But I think it's sad because I think we need to be encouraging people to hone that craft because that's the craft that's going to make great shows. And not every show will be based on a movie then, you know. It's just a number of original ideas for musicals have to come from people who are writing for musical theater. And I think everyone needs to encourage that just because I think the, the, the musical theater is our American art form and I think that's what's unique about it and that's what needs to be... You know, we need to foster. Sorry, I told you I was going to soapbox. I'll get off it. You're one of the few people, you'd really count them on one hand, who have directed and written your own shows often. Do you find yourself ever in conflict with yourself as a director, writer, as you're doing both jobs? Uh, well, you remember when I started as a playwright directing, it was really hard. But then you have an Andre Bishop around, or when a musical, I have you around. You need somebody to bounce off of. I don't know that I'm in conflict. Sometimes maybe I don't understand what a problem is, whether it's the book or the direction. And if there were more, you know, different people doing it, that would be easier to solve. On the other hand, I think I work out what I do while I'm directing it. I, I discovered that by having other people direct. You know, I had another person direct a play of mine a couple seasons ago at Playwrights, and my wife pointed out, you don't understand, that's how you write your show. I mean, you need to be in there every day, working on it, changing the lines, finding out what works. It's just how I've learned. So it wasn't anything against the director who did it. I just realized that it's for better or for worse my process. So I would say for better in your case, because my observation is that you have a remarkable objectivity that a lot of people would not be able to have as an editor, as a... And it's very hard. You become, I, I think a lot of writers become wedded to every word and every syllable and everything and find it difficult to cut and edit. And, yeah, and sometimes have, it's the other way. You end up butchering your own work because you've just got to be, I'll be objective here. And, you know, it is hard. But, um, but getting back to Into the Woods and uh, the current production, were there things that you wanted to do differently in the current production or rethink? Or what was the idea about reviving the... You know, I'll be perfectly honest. People say, why'd you revive? It. I revived it because I wanted to make the money. 
It's that simple, you know. I, and I thought, of everything I've done in my life, this is the show that's earned me money. And it's had a wonderful life in stock and amateur theater. And I knew if we revived it, it would help keep that alive. And it wasn't like, I've got to go back and redirect the show. It was, you know, I love the show. And I thought, you know, uh, rather than go make a TV show or go make a movie I don't want to make, why don't I take something that I love and give it more life so that's really but you did not take the easy way out you gave it a new production oh yeah it would be too boring to just remount it and by the way i think it would have been a disaster i think the only reason it's gonna i think hopefully have a life is because it's at least it's so recent that uh, for people to come back there has to be sort of new thing but i have to say in retrospect there were things i made a lot of mistakes on the old end of the woods so it was great to have the chance to redo it particularly as a director i made a lot of mistakes the set you know, it's one of those lessons where the set sabotaged me in the theater, and we had this big, whirling 360 Phantom of the Opera thing. It never went away, and you couldn't stage anything around it. And I don't blame the designer, because I was all for it at the time. And that was a terrible production, but there were a lot of things I didn't solve. The funny thing about it is, though, because we were basically trying out on Broadway and opening on Broadway, there was a lot of, uh, I was so stressed and pressured that we cut a lot of things, we threw a lot of things out, there were different endings that we didn't give chances to, and I thought, well, great, now we'll go back and we can dug up all that material, and I thought we can now try all that, and the irony is pretty much we discovered that we had made the right decision. What I thought was going to be a sort of rewritten, restructured piece turned out to be pretty much the mm -hmm. same. You know, and then Steve is going, well, you're just changing it because you want to change it, you know. I mean, it worked. these things worked, and it was true. It was a little bit of a struggle. It's a struggle to get him to kind of rethink a couple of the numbers. And, um, you know, it was a very pleasant experience, actually. It wasn't uh, artistically the most challenging thing to go back to something, but it was really actually kind of, it was a kind of gift to be able to go back to something 15 years later and kind of have another shot at it. You described your uh, visual sense as being a stimulus for your directing I would extend that idea to that your directing style is very cinematic. You're also a film director. Has your theater directing influenced your, the way you would approach a film? Well, you know, I think about if I had done Sunday, I probably would have done like Moulin Rouge. You know, I can't do Moulin Rouge anymore. In a way, as a director, you kind of, I'm, I'm locked now. I don't know if I can make a good movie. I can make a good movie, but I don't know that I haven't become an animal of theater and whether... I'm working on a movie now, trying to write it, and I'm, I'm filled with self-doubt. I just don't know. I don't know. The camera is such a different medium, and uh, it's like being in tech every single day. I'm too conservative a person, you know. I tend to put the camera where I know I get what I need, and I'll do this. I know the craft of it, whereas the sort of Baz Luhrmann types just kind of don't give a shit and throw it in the air, and that's why their films, I think I love them, are kind of much looser than I'm I don't seem to get the material that's loose either, so... No, I'll keep trying. I mean, it's a challenge. And you're so dependent on all these other people. You know, you've got the cinematographer who's lighting it. You can't tell what the hell it's going to look like. You know, you're looking at it, and it's like... You, you pretend, you look at the camera, you hold the thing up, you do that. I swear, you don't know what the hell you're looking at. You know, it's impossible, because they go, well, we're going to stop it down two stops. And I know photography. Okay, and we're going to, you know, we're going to flash the film. There are these other people who stare at this video monitor, which I don't like to do because the actors want you right there near the camera. But most directors actually are just there, like, across the street, watching 
And I find it so not being engaged in the process to be across the street staring at a TV screen. So, I don't know. Um, it was the one thing in the world I wanted to do was to make a movie. So it's sort of funny that I kind of cracked that one yet. What about, you've done a couple of plays that maybe we could compare and contrast a little bit. Something like a revival of The Diary of Anne Frank. Right. Was that something that was your idea to do? Were you approached to do that? No, it was my idea, actually. And then I found out some producers were also interested in it, so we sort of joined forces. What attracted you to that? Boy, you know, I don't remember why. I don't know how I became interested in doing that. For me, as a director, I just want to do things I haven't done. So I had never done a revival. of I've never done an MBS. Very few other people's plays. I'd never done a revival. So that held that challenge for me of just doing something different. And I don't know, maybe just, again, having a kid. I just thought that was a great story. And I read it. I didn't particularly love the play when I read it. Uh, that's an interesting story, too, because I was going to do a really wild production of it. And, you know, I had this whole sort of visual and abstraction I was going to do. And then we went over to Amsterdam and we went and met Meep and went to the annex and everything. And I thought, what are you thinking? You know, you're going to like take these people's law. I mean, you know, and I just came back and we created the set to be as close to the thing. You know, I just thought this is perverse to kind of do an inspector calls at the diary of Anne Frank. And in a funny way, I don't know that I, I chickened out. You know, I sometimes think, well, I would like to have seen that sort of abstract production, but I just couldn't bring myself, I didn't have the courage to do it in a funny kind of way. What about a play like uh, Golden Child, David Wang's play? Yeah, David sent me that, and again, I read it and I thought, wow, these are people I don't know, and this is a world I don't know, and I didn't have anything to do, and I thought, what the heck, sure, it was just like that, I said, sure, I'm sure I was like down to the L's on the list, but <laughs> I thought, yeah, it was really, again, I couldn't even like make out what these people's names were on the page. I had to read it a couple of times, and I thought, because I didn't know what it was or what was going on, I thought, well, I'll learn a lot here. You know, I'll learn. I'd never done a new play, actually, oddly enough. I admire him so much. And Was there a lot of rewriting? Was it c comparable to doing a musical, new music? Yeah, constant, and I couldn't find... Uh, I probably am not the easiest person to work with because I just nudge, 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 and he was great. He just continually kept rewriting, and... He let me, I said, I'm going to try this, I'm going to try that. And he saw it. There was a whole kind of baptismal scene that was not in the play that I said, let's, you know, I just, I was nervous. So I'm just going to do something. You come in and look at it. And he just loved all these little things that I came up with. So it was a wonderful collaboration. We had a lot of music. Lucia Wong, who he works with, a wonderful composer. And, uh, it was just great. I just think he's brilliant. And we did that many times. <laughs> that show, you know, went to the here, and then the Kennedy Center, and then California, and then Taiwan, and then San Francisco, and then it came back. So it was a wild ride. Yeah, I think it's a wonderful play. I don't understand why it didn't have a long life. How do you feel about seeing, because now we're, we, we've, we both seem to have arrived at an age where we're seeing our shows that we've worked on being revived or in new productions, uh, and how do you feel about that? I think I'm... Uh, Probably not very healthy on the subject. <laughs> I don't know, in that I don't really want to go down to see them. You know, I did see one other production of Sunday in London, and it was just not a pleasant experience. It wasn't that it was even bad. It was just I don't know. I couldn't. I didn't have the distance from my own to enjoy it. And then um, I saw Passion 
when Eric did it the first time, I thought it was terrific. But what he did was what we did. He was able to do it in a 150-seat theater with, what was a nine-piece orchestra. It was fantastic. You know, we did it together at Lincoln Center in a very 100-seat theater, and it was fantastic. And then we did it in a 1,000-seat theater, and it, it just, it was just what I was talking about. You became very removed, and the intensity of it kind of got separated. But I'm thrilled they're doing it. I just don't know that I want to see it. That's all. I mean, I'm happy they're doing it, and I'm, ha I'm thrilled for Steve. I mean, it's probably going to be a great weekend to go down and see three straight shows. It'll be really, it must be. I mean, it's sold out in 10 minutes, and mm -hmm. it's great for him. But I don't think I have the objectivity to uh, have fun. Does anybody have any questions they'd like to ask? Yes, sir. We're sorry, but this question was inaudible. Mm, no, I wouldn't. First of all, anybody who wants to do it now has two versions of it to do. So in a way, I think we were... I were wise to do a revise. I think, I don't know if you know the whole history of that play. There's some fascinating books on it. It's a long story and I won't go into it, but somebody else had the rights and wrote the play. There's another play that didn't get put on and it was a whole Lillian Hellman thing where she was involved and, you know, a whole anti-Semitism thing. And I think Wendy Kesselman did a great job. I would never go back and do it again. We're sorry, but this question was inaudible. It was a challenge, you know. I it's not, you know. I don't do kitchen sink. That's kind of not my thing. You don't call me to do a Tennessee Williams play. I wish I could. It's just not what interests me. I, I like a kind of broader, kind of palette to play with, and I love going to those plays. I mean, Dan Sullivan, I think, is like a brilliant director, and I can't. I'm just overwhelmed at what he's able to do with plays to keep my interest in them. So it, it was hard for me to do Anne Frank, and it was hard to cast, and it was hard. Uh, it was a challenge all the way around. And we had an actress by a door, but was 15 and had never been on the stage before. Having her carry a show was a great stress. She was just brilliant, you know, person to work with. But it was a tough ride, that show. And, um, and you had on top of it all everybody's expectation and this kind of, you know, oh, why are you fooling around with that? attitude. So it was a challenge. And, and then we tried out of town, didn't get good reviews. That's fun. It was a hard ride. A wonderful company, though. Some inspired performances. Linda Lavin was just amazing, amazing. And it was tough, but fun. I think we all were thrilled to have done it. And uh, the best thing about that show were the Wednesday matinees, which was all kids. To, to see kids, rowdy kids, come to that play and hear them get quieter and quieter and quieter was very moving. And I know people from the original weren't too fond of our production, but I'm sure how could they be? You know, I mean, it's the same for me going down to Washington. It's just you have your own experience in life, and and that's what's great about the theater. You know, it's different different when it's done, and you can't compete with the past. You, know, you just have to do your own version. Yes. We're sorry, but this question was inaudible. Yeah, I don't know that you have a collaboration in film, unless you're like, uh, who are those brothers, the Cone brothers, which I think their movies are brilliant, and they they have a theatrical collaboration in film. I think Baz Luhrmann does. Um, I think there are a few people who do the guy who did Opposite of Sex, I thought was just an incredible movie, but it's just, can't imagine. We're sorry, but this question was inaudible. Well, it's not non-collaborative. I mean, you collaborate... Yeah, you collaborate with your editor a lot, but that's after you've already made a movie, you know. And um, No, it's it's collaborative. It's just uh, you don't create on the spot on a movie because you've got to know 
that you know five trucks are going to pull up to 43rd Street tomorrow. So you and you only have you know six hours of light, and you can only work. You know how do you collaborate under those circumstances? And you just don't. Or you're Martin Scorsese, and you have 120 days to shoot something or whatever or whatever it is, and you can then. Or Woody Allen. Woody Allen can, can do it Woody Allen's way, but you know you, I'm not Woody Allen. So. I, I think they're just completely different mediums. I think if you want to be a film director. You kind of overhear. The thing that I got into the theater for was to learn how to work with actors, and I think that is wildly useful if you're going to make a movie. But a lot of movie directors, you talk to actors, and they say they get no direction, and some of them don't want any direction. They literally are not used to being directed in a film. It's all about the camera angle and this and that, and you know, they, you hire the actor and they do what they do, and then you cut it together and whatever. We're sorry, but this question was inaudible. There were monologues, though, or occasional stage direction, like this could be a dog song, you know. Um, and uh, there were some monologues. And I remember bringing in the first six pages of that to Steve. And he's sitting there and sitting there. And then where he chose to put that opening number, the title song, was just I just thought, wow. I mean, I don't know how he knew where to put it, and he knew exactly where to put it, and he talked about how he was going to do it and why you had to have it. He said, this is really arty what you've written, so we need to give people a kind of razzmatazz number to make them know that it's okay, they're going to have a good time. I mean, it was so practically like a surgeon, you know. He never wrote the song for I don't know how long, but he would go through the pages and go, make notes and go, yeah, I think this is where this song would be. And he chose the title for that show, and he was, like, unbelievable the way he took what I wrote and created what he created. We're sorry, but this question was inaudible. I, when I did the Gertrude Stein photograph, what I did is I took famous images, and like the raising of the flag at Iwo Jima, but I did it with people in bathing suits and a, and a you know, umbrella, sun umbrella. I just took well-known images and then sort of created strange variations on them. So when we looked at Sunday in the Park, I thought, well, there's an act end. I mean, really, I said, that could be a great curtain for act one. So now all I have to do is work backwards, you know. And the funny thing about it is I didn't, maybe in a retrospect, I didn't do any research at all on the painting. I just started writing, and I looked at them, and I thought, well, he can be a boatman, and wouldn't that be funny if they were hookers or, you know, I mean, that kind of thing. And I was just very loose in those days. I didn't have any real... So, And then we thought, well, the one person who's missing in this picture, of course, is the guy who painted it. So that's when it kind of came together. And when it was originally written, it was a three-act show, and we traced 100 years of the painting from its conception to present day. And because that painting, you know, was rolled up, and it was stuck in somebody's attic, and then it was... It has a long history, and it was almost burned down in a fire at the Museum of Modern Art. There's a famous picture of it being carried out. The only time it had ever left the Art Institute of Chicago. I mean, it's just a painting that had a life. But then it would have been, you know, a Robert Wilson piece, and we decided. So what we did is we just jumped the 100 years and threw everything else out. And we had all the other paintings. had Les Pazos in there, and, you know, I really went to town. So uh, it just kind of found its shape along the way. Can you talk a little bit more about it because the uh, the this actual structure of a show like Sunday because the first act and the second act are uh, you know in many ways like two one act plays yeah. linked. What was the impetus to, to 
to approach it that way. You said you worked backwards. Did you know how you wanted it to end? At the very end, not really. It's a little, it's a been, it was a little kind of gerrymandered, that piece, that way. I don't remember, to tell you the truth. I don't know. I know there was the 100-year thing, and then when we took the 100-year thing, you needed a thread, and that's where the baby came in. The baby, because there's a big box in that image, which if you read some people, it's very funny, they say, it's oh, it's like a pretzel stand, and they were right. making pretzels, and other people said, no, it's a baby carriage. So, you know, I don't remember. That's a long time ago. I don't know how it happened. And, um, I had gotten from Scott Shukat a New Yorker article on May West that he thought Alan Menken and I should write a musical, so I read the New Yorker article. And I had, you know, May West is never one of anybody I had any attraction to until I read this article and discovered what a kind of wild and amazing person she was outside of that frozen persona. And so I just called Claudia up, uh, you know, and said, gee, you're just a subject that interests you or whatever. And did you know her from uh, I Lone never Sideways? really, I had seen her in Blown Sideways Through Life, which I just, to this day, think is one of the great theater pieces. And she came in, and it was funny because she really tried to write a play. You know, she was trying to write, you know, and then she met, and then she fucked, and then she did this. And I was reading, I go, you know, this isn't working. You know, what you need to do is... And she so resisted putting herself into the story. And then the other thing I did with her, I said, don't worry about the structure at all. Don't worry at all. You know, let's just, like we did with Bill Finn, let's have an idea here, an idea here, an idea. I'll put it together. She never wrote anything sequentially at all. She just wrote this kind of skit. It was like skits and this idea and that idea and that idea. And what I love to do is then do that. And then we did the cards on the board and the whole here, the whole here, the whole here. And then I said, I really want to do this to as few people as possible. Um, so we started to figure out, well, if he's going to play Frank Wallace, then he can't be in this scene to play. You know, so we, the structure was almost dictated by the limitations of everything. It was kind of fun that way. And then we thought, well, we need some music. So you sort of go, you know, five-card song, five-card song. And then we had Bob Stillman. And it just kind of evolved. I had one image. I said... I want to write a show where two people dressed as Mae West kissed and one's a man and one's a woman. And I said, I don't know anything else, but I want that to be the final image of the show and that's where it's going to end up. So that immediately informed the drag queen story and the this and the that. But I just had that image. I thought, you know, like a mirror and this is a woman who... And I'm fascinated by that drag queen thing and why would a woman, a mannish woman inspire men to dress up to be a mannish woman. I don't know. The whole thing was just like <laughs> trying to wrap my head around and I thought, well, there's a subject here somewhere. So that's how it happened. And she did all the work. She did all that hard writing. I didn't really write anything, but I did the entire structure and told her what to write a lot. And she was great because she would come in volumes and I'd just go, no, 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 yes, no, no, yes. And she was great about it. It was fine. It was fine. You know, because she's an actress. She wanted to do what she did, and she wrote herself into it. She created that character of her own, which made everything, and gave her a great part, I might add. You know, she really, the hardest acting part was not that Mae West was playing the character that was closest to her. She was just couldn't wrap her head around that. We're sorry, but this question was inaudible. We didn't. That was a bad move. Get a contract first. Yeah, well, it was a lot of rights. We had to get all the rights to the May West estate. That took 
it ended up being a very costly project to put up because we had to get all those rights and all those lawyers and everything. And you know what? And same with Bill. You know, when I did falsettos, I never had a credit as a writer at all. And then when we did falsetto land, I think he, he was very generous. He said, you know, you're really... Even because, again, it goes back to what we were saying about book writing and this notion that, you know, it's collaborative. I thought when you did Contact, it was so great that it said by Susan Stroman and John Weidman. Well, we've know. all learned now what it takes to put on that kind of a yeah. conceptual Yeah, so the second time we did Falsetto Land, uh, Bill just said, I just want to say it's by you and me, and we did that. And then when we put them together, we just said, I don't remember, I think we shared a book credit when we put it together. And, I know a lot of people, you know, Jerry Robbins used to have this thing where if you go in for a meeting with him, he'd give you a piece of paper that said, any ideas that, that I have at this meeting are mine, you can't have them. I understand that, you know, because you can give a piece of yourself over, you know. But in the end, if you start worrying too much about the contracts and not about the work, I mean, you do have to kind of get it straight. And it was, it was awkward afterwards trying to figure out how to credit it, you know, what the proper credit for it was and... I mean, the Elaine Stritch one is interesting. What did she constructed by John Lair and reconstructed? Or you know, I mean, so it's weird trying to figure those things out. But on the other hand, how can you have a contract on something you don't even know what it is yet? I mean, I think if I did it again, I might think of a different way of doing it. But in the end, you know, whatever. You know, you just you do something good. That's what matters. I mean, the reason I like to have the co-conceived credit is if somebody does it in ten years or fifteen years or 30 years and I'm not around, it's nice to know that you're associated with it and somebody somewhere will actually maybe look your name up for whatever that's worth. Yeah. We're sorry, but this question was inaudible. Oh, uh, it just came out on DVD. <laughs> <laughs> is it really? Yes, it is. Really? Yeah, you think I get a dime from that talking about contracts. My wife wrote it. I have to give her credit. Yeah. And she said, she wrote it for me. She said, I'm writing you a movie because I want you to direct a movie. And then she'd come into my room and put pages down and then stick on the Chopin music. She picked every piece of music in that movie for each scene. She really knows her stuff. So it was really an interesting way to work. She had every piece of music worked out to every scene and, um, and the list music. She really knew all. We're sorry, but this question was inaudible. No, you know what? I was just total, again, I fell into it because somebody wrote me a letter saying, if you ever want to make a movie, I think you'd be a good movie director. So Sarah wrote the script. I sent him the script. Uh, We went out to California and had like one meeting. The people said, we want to make it. I went to Sundance with it to try to learn how to direct. I was there for two days, and the phone rang. and said, you have to get to Paris. We're making this movie now. And I was like, wait a minute. I'm not ready to make this movie. <laughs> I went to Paris and arrived, you know, jet-lagged. Had three days. Robert Redford said, you'll be fine, you'll be fine, you'll be fine. I don't know what I'm doing. I shot one little scene on video. And there you are. with Everybody speaks French, and my French is just horrid. There is no French. And I'm looking at locations, and Sarah put, like, Brittany in one of the, I don't know, and she put, oh, no, I don't remember which re- region she put in one of the chateaus and said it was um, Dordogne or something. The next thing I know, I'm on a prop plane to Dordogne, you know, <laughs> looking at these medieval castles that are not how I imagined it at all. 
And I remember coming back to Paris and I said, first of all, I don't think these people know what they're doing. And she said, why do you think they're making the movie? (laughs) (laughs) Because it was the blind leading the blind. I mean, they had some international money deal whereby they could get this number of American, this number of British, this number of French. It was one of those periods they could get the $4 million to make the movie. And I was running around... You know, I would, and they in France are so respectful of the director that no one was helping me. And so I'd walk into, I literally shot this movie in rooms half the size of this. And, you know, I didn't know. I remember the first day we pull up to the set and there's like hundreds of people milling around. I said, where are we? And Sarah said, this is it, this is the set. I said, are all these people here to make the movie? She said, yeah. It was like, it was just a shock. And, and you can imagine in a room half this size with 30 people and all the camera equipment trying to, you know, I didn't know you could make a fake wall and, you know, make the exact same room in a room twice the size and just make a fake wall and put it up. It was kind of hilarious, the whole thing. And the very first day of shooting, we had an exterior scene and uh, Bernadette was in it, which was great. Bernadette and Mandy were my lifesavers, and Judy Davis. And they had, you know, these lavaliers on because we had to follow them with the mic. And so I had my headsets on, as did everybody. And I hear Judy Davis saying, I don't think he knows what the fuck he's doing. <laughs> I mean, can you believe the lighting on this? And they're going to shoot. I'm going to look terrible. You know, they're shooting it. And I'm like, have the head thing. And I'm like, everybody's listening and looking at me. And, just and Bernadette was great. She said, oh, relax, relax. So you'll look old. What the fuck's the difference? <laughs> it, was, it was really trial by fire. But we made a good movie, I think. And at the end of the day, even Judy Davis gave me a compliment. She was tough. She was just, uh, you know. A lot of times the actors just need to know you. someone there is in control and when you don't know what you're doing, literally. And on same with the French. I mean, you know, the cinematographer and everybody, they didn't know me from Adam and there's no allegiance to you because you're never going to come back to Paris and make a movie with them. So the allegiances were all to the wrong people. It was really... And having to give all the direction through a translator was really, really hard because you never knew really what they were saying. And then I had a friend who came on as an extra one day who lived in France, and she kept saying, you know, you're telling him to tell us this, but he's not telling us this. He's telling us this. It was, it was a challenge. But I loved every minute of it, I have to say. And working in France is, you know, in retrospect, was just great. You know, now I can appreciate it. And also, trying to get other movies made, you know, years could try and get a movie made. It was, who knew? It was, and Sarah kept, my wife kept saying, you know, it doesn't work this way. It's really wild. It's happening so fast. It's too fast. We have a time for a couple more questions, if you have any. We're sorry, but this question was inaudible. I'm doing, uh, which Ira helped me on, and Ira, by the way, this guy is a genius, and he is responsible, as you had said, but I will repeat it, you know, for me being in the theater and, and creating such a great so many great pieces. A piece called La Pass, well, now it's called Amour, a title I don't love. La Pass Marai, Michel Legrand, who's a French composer, uh, sung through. It's very quirky. It's a real oddball piece. I don't know if it will fly on Broadway. I would have put it at Playwrights Horizons, but then I would put everything at Playwrights Horizons. I think it's going to be worth seeing, though. I think it's, I've been having fun with it. Usually as a director, I try not to overshadow the material, but this piece sort of calls for a real directorial flair, so I've been kind of just trying to be really creative and uh, really give it a real spin visually. 
and the music is really beautiful, lush, beautiful French. He did Umbrellas of Cherbourg. I don't know if you're familiar with that. They did on the, Andre Serban did a great production of many years ago. We're sorry, but this question was inaudible. Uh, Andre Bishop, I told you the first group came to my show, and then Andre I met because of my Yale relationships. I went to a reading of Wendy Wasserstein, who's a great pal, and Andre was taking tickets at the time. And I met him, and when I went off to this writer's colony and wrote a couple plays, I sent them to him, and he just said, sure, I'll do one of them. And so he's been a kind of great patron. And beyond that, um, it just depends on the project, who... who with Steve Sondheim's show, we never, our three shows, we never had a producer until we had written it, which is great. And then well, we, you had a, you had, we had a Andre home. And well, we had a home in the sense of being able to go to Ira and Andre, but we didn't have to, we didn't shop it around. But let's stop there because that's maybe an interesting thing to touch on just for a second the difference between the not working in the nonprofit theater right. and that kind of producing and working in the commercial theater because you've had equal experiences right. in both. Well, the not profit is obviously preferable. I mean, just because I think if somebody produces in the not for profit, they don't expect to make a profit. You know, I mean, they, they, you know, they would like to, but I think they're into establishing, I would hope long-term relationships with artists and you know Joe Papp was the first guy uh, Andre and Joe Papp were the sort of first producers I had contact with and when you do the commercial theater nowadays in particular it's just so many groups of people and it's a lot of consortium I was lucky because after we did because of Steve Sondheim really when we did Sunday at Playwrights the Schuberts came and the Schuberts are one of the rare people who can just write a check and they're wonderful they just leave you alone they do not ever my experiences with them impose any creative input, you know, and they leave you alone, and so that was a glorious experience. But they're not. Have you found commercial that. producers, if you don't have to name names, but have commercial producers to be more intrusive in a way that's been difficult? Well, I wouldn't say intrusive, but worrisome. You know, they're worried because they have their investors who come to the shows, who then they have to listen. I have a rule with everybody I work with, and not in, in the commercial thing. It's just. I'll take any note you have, but you have to put it in writing. And so it's a great rule. You just say to people, I really want to know what you think, but I'm really tired at the end of the day. I'm very fried, and if you try and give me input, and I'm tired, I'm going to get cranky, and I'm going to chuck your head off. And, but if you write everything out, you know, I promise you I will read it, and I will respond to it, and I do that. And so I, in the morning when I'm rested, I take a cup of coffee, and I can go through it. And I would say 75% of the notes you get are your own notes. Yes, of course you shouldn't wear that hat. Yes, of course that doesn't work. But what it does is it lets them relax that you're on the same, literally same page. And then the other things I go, if I have time, I'll try that. I don't agree with that. I'll talk to you about it, and I do it that way. And I find it's a – and what happens is you get – one or, you get it once or twice, and then people just stop doing it because it takes them time and energy to do it. And also, they realize you know what you're doing after a couple of go-rounds. And also, it lets them get out their worries and anxieties. So I think it's a really useful thing. And I frankly learned it on Sunday in the Park working with Mandy Patinkin. We just didn't get on you know, when we first started working together. And he couldn't hear me, and I knew he didn't. You know, It was just a lot. And again, I was very new to what I was doing. So one day, I just said, I can't do this. I sat out, and I wrote him out my notes, and I messengered. This is pre-email, pre-computer. you know, computer. I typed them out, 
I messengered there up to his house, and I gave him all, a lot of compliments, too, which were heartfelt at the things that changed and worked. And I think it just changed our complete working relationship because he was able to take in what I was saying, and I was able to express it, and we didn't have the personality interplay with it. And it was great, and we actually grew to become fantastic friends and great collaborators, and that's how we were able to do it. And I realized, well, this is a good way to communicate with people. And you can say things, and also when you compliment people, and I'm the same way, I don't really hear compliments a lot. It's a kind of, I don't want to, you know, they embarrass me, and I don't want to hear them. But this way, you put it in writing, and if your wife is passing by and she reads it, she goes, you see what he said? <laughs> and it was a great, and I was a great tool. So I still do that often with certain actors, and it just helps. You've talked about the serendipity of a lot of your career, and particularly at the beginning, and falling into things, but you're now in a position where you can pick and choose and create your own uh, projects and really do anything you want. Is there something that you are dreaming of doing now? Yeah, I'd like to go back and do graphic design. <laughs> no, I'm serious. I would love, I don't know if I have the courage to take a year off and get a studio and go back to just uh, graphic photography. Design. I tried to take up photography again. I went to ICP and took a course and you know, photography has just changed technically and digital and all this. And I thought, you know, I'm too old. That's terrible to say. I'm too old to try. I can't compete. I don't see anything. I don't see a void out there, you know, that I could fill. So I would like to do fine art again. But I can't. Like, Donald Margulies does wonderful collages. And he also started as a graphic designer. But I can't. I don't have the time to do it along with everything else. So that, I think, is what I'd like to, you know, that's my wish, top of my wish list. One more question. We're sorry, but this question was inaudible. Well, you know what I learned, because, again, it, I had no training and that was hard. There are certain kind of, there is the language and vocabulary you have to learn. But I learned that, I say this to every actor, everybody comes from a different training. And you've got the Yale people here and, you know, the Stella Adler here. And so what I do the first week, I tell them, I don't give any direction at all, basically. I just let everybody do what they want to do. Because the minute you start, when I first started, I had everything worked out. I knew what I wanted. I had written it. I knew how I wanted the line read. I knew where the emphasis on the line was. I was like taking them. And of course, you know, they rebelled because, and then I realized, well, if you tell them nothing or very little, then people get really hungry. Oh, was that good? Or did I do that? You know, and they start coming to you and everybody's all over the map because you got this one doing the this one's off book and that one's like reading and and it's a great thing to sort of see where everybody goes the people who do their homework come in with what they think they should be doing and uh, then I slowly start drawing them into what I feel my vision Freud is and also often people will do things like what I learned as a writer-director is get that line reading out of your head because somebody else will come up with a better line reading. And so if you create an atmosphere where everybody can kind of just... And some people don't like it. They want to be told where to go, when to cross, and the others... You know, so it's just about trying to, to create an atmosphere where the most creativity can be born and everybody can have their moment. And I, I, that's my own... For me, it works every time now. And then by the time you get to week two and week three, everybody's on, everybody's together, you know, and you've all worked towards the center and nobody's coming up to you the 110th time saying, you know, I really want to try this, you know, because they've already had their moment. Well, James, thank you. I can't believe it's been 25 years of, of uh, 
inspired is it work. Yes. Years? Oh, yeah. I hate to say it, but. Uh, uh, the, the worst thing is, you know, I came and saw you into the woods when I was six. You know, yeah. and like, oh, now that I'm, now I'm bringing my child. I, I wasn't born yet when you did March of the Falsettos. That's uh, my favorite. Anyway. Again, this is Hal Prince, and thank you for listening to Masters of the Stage. This program was made possible by support from the Society of Stage Directors and Choreographers, the National Labor Union celebrating five decades representing the needs and aspirations of its members online at ssdc.org. The online series is presented in collaboration with the American Theatre Wing, dedicated to illuminating how theater is made through the words of the people who make theater. Visit them online at americantheaterwing.org.